Hey, did you hear the news? Based on a True Story has its own Alexa skill. Just say, Alexa, enable Based on a True Story to enable it, and then you can say things like, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to play the latest episode. Or, Alexa, tell Based on a True Story to fast forward two minutes. Check it out and let me know what you think by leaving a review for the skill. All right, and now, on with the show. July 21st, 1999, New York. In a darkened room, two big screens showed the Macworld logo as everyone waited in anticipation for the keynote speech to kick off the expo. Then, the screen changed to say something new. Steve Jobs, I-CEO. Thunderous applause and cheers greeted him as he walked on stage wearing his trademark black turtleneck and pair of jeans. Cheers turned to laughter as everyone realized it wasn't Steve Jobs who walked out on stage. About a month before the expo, on June 20th, 1999, TNT had premiered a made-for-TV movie about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates. The day after it aired, Steve Jobs picked up the phone and called the man who played him on screen, Noah Wiley. As Noah would later recount in an interview with Fortune magazine, we were under a very strict directive not to contact the people we were playing for fear that they would find something libelous in the script and shut the production down. So I didn't. The day after the movie aired, in 1999, I was sitting in my living room and my phone with what I thought was my unlisted phone number rang. Noah, said the voice. Yes, I said. This is Steve Jobs. My heart started beating through my shirt, and he said, and I've memorized this, I'm just calling to tell you I thought you did a good job. I hated the movie. I hated the script. I think if you had spent a little more time and a little more money and maybe a little more attention to detail, you could have had something there. But you were good. And all I could say was, Thank you, sir. Listen, we do this thing every year called the Macworld Convention. It's in New York at the Jevitz Center. There will be about 10,000 people there. And I think it would be hilarious if you could come out on stage dressed as me and did the first five minutes of my keynote address. Are you interested? Absolutely. Noah Wiley's presence at Macworld in 1999 was a surprise for many. But it's clear from Noah's recounting of the conversation with Steve Jobs that despite being a fan of Noah's acting, he didn't really like the storyline that we saw in Pirates of Silicon Valley. But how well does it hold up to a check of historical accuracy? I'm Dan LeFebvre, and this is Based on a True Story. Before we dive into our story today, let's take a little break to set up our two truths and a lie game. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three facts. Two of them are true, which means one of them is a lie. And you'll want to remember these. So are you ready? Here we go. Number one, the graphical user interface wasn't Apple or Microsoft's idea first. Number two, the quote, licorice computer, end quote, was Steve Wozniak's first computer. Number three, Steve Jobs has a daughter named Lisa. Okay. Now, remember those because as you're listening to our story today, you'll find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and then by a process of elimination, you'll know which one is a lie. 
And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. Oh, and while I have you here, have you ever wished you could get more based on a true story? Well, you can. Just sign up to be an official producer of the show and you'll get access to all of the past and any future bonus episodes that come out. For example, there have been bonus episodes for movies like Becoming Jane, The Lost City of Z, Matahari, From Hell, Breach, Anastasia, and many, many more. There's hours and hours of bonus content ready immediately. So if you get done with this episode, you want something to listen to, you can become a producer to get access to those and, of course, all future bonus episodes as well. Oh, and producers also get to pick a movie to jump to the top of the list. So by that, what I mean is anytime somebody requests a movie, I add it to a list. That list is an ever-growing list, and currently there's about a couple hundred movies or so on that list. Now, with a weekly show, 52 weeks in a year, kind of gives you an idea of how long it will take to get through that list. If you want to make sure yours jumps to the front of the line or the top of the list and get covered on the show, hop on over to basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support and become a producer of the show. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And with that, let's compare history with Hollywood's version of Pirates of Silicon Valley. don't want you to think about this as just a film. That's what we hear Noah Wiley's version of Steve Jobs say as he speaks directly into the camera to open the movie. Then the camera pans around and we see that Steve is talking to Ridley Scott, who's played by J.G. Hertzler. We're on a film set and soon we see a woman walking down the aisle of a dystopian room, hurling her hammer at the huge face on the screen. The message is clear. A single person versus a huge corporation. David versus Goliath. Us versus Big Brother. After this, in the movie, we hear Joey Slotnick's version of Steve Wozniak jump ahead 13 years later. This time, in Boston, we see Steve Jobs talking and Bill Gates on screen. Steve Jobs says, The era of competition is over. Apple and Microsoft are working together. This sandwiching of events over a decade apart is kind of how the movie sets up the context of how things changed between Apple and Microsoft. So for our purposes today, let's just say that both of the overarching events are true, but we'll focus on the earlier one first and then kind of work our way to the end. That commercial we saw in the opening scene was the very first Macintosh commercial. It aired on January 22nd, 1984. It was, as the movie implies, intended to play off the totalitarian future as told in George Orwell's novel, 1984. The ad cost about $900,000 to make, and it really was Ridley Scott who directed it. He was just coming off hits like Alien and Blade Runner, so it's clear that Apple was going big with their ad. They wanted to make a splash, and that they did. Even today, that ad, which is simply called 1984, is seen by many as one of the greatest commercials of all time. Going back to the movie, after seeing the ad were sent out to Berkeley, the movie doesn't indicate the year, but it's clearly earlier than 1984 because Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, or Woz as he's called, are together in college. It's here that we see the two Steves teaming up to work on something they call a blue box. Basically, Wayne Pierce's character, someone that they just call Captain Crunch, 
found out that the toy whistle in the Captain Crunch box mimics perfectly the tones of AT&T's long-distance equipment. Using this idea, Waz turns it into a blue box, a way to make free long-distance phone calls. That is true. Steve Wozniak first found out about the person nicknamed Captain Crunch because of an article in Esquire magazine about telephone hackers known as phone freaks. That's P-H-R-E-A-K-S. Although the movie doesn't mention his real name, the person known as Captain Crunch was a man named John Draper. It was purely coincidence, but John was the one who figured out that the seemingly harmless toy in a box of Captain Crunch cereal could be used to do something illegal make free telephone calls. After Waz read the article in Esquire, he reached out to John and learned more about it. It's not likely that Waz cared that it was illegal, which it was, but he used his genius to build boxes that replicated the idea. In fact, one of the scenes we see in the movie is when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak pranked the Pope by calling him on one of the blue box devices. That actually happened. Steve Wozniak pretended to be the United States Secretary of State at the time, Henry Kissinger. But Woz didn't actually talk to the Pope. Someone called up the real Henry Kissinger first and quickly realized that the other call wasn't him. Blue boxing was popular until the 1990s after the FBI got involved and arrested some of the hackers while telephone companies changed their technology. Back in the movie, after deciding not to build a career out of building something illegal that would certainly land them in hot water, Steve Wozniak builds a computer. But then we see the room filled with smoke. Reporters come to document the computer, enter his room, and find Joey Slotnick's version of Woz laughing with Steve Jobs waving away the smoke. Woz laughs and explains, and it just caught fire. That's true. The computer did catch fire, although Woz did not build it with Steve Jobs like the movie shows. He built it with someone who isn't even in the movie at all. That would be a man named Bill Fernandez. Bill would go on to become the fourth overall employee at Apple. The day was June 14th, 1971, and it was the very first computer built by Steve Wozniak. There wasn't a monitor or keyboard like what we have on computers today. It really consisted of about 20 chips on a board that made up a whopping 256 bytes of RAM. Yes, that's bytes. Not kilobytes, which is a thousand bytes, not megabytes, which is a million bytes. Of course, these days we have gigabytes, which is a thousand megabytes, but that first computer from Waz was a far cry from the computers that we're used to dealing with today. It accepted computer programs through a series of punch cards, and after computing the program, it would indicate the results through a series of flashing lights. Oh, and Bill and Waz dubbed it the cream soda computer because their building process involved consuming quite a bit of cream soda. Back in the movie, after getting this sort of introduction from Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, we head over to Harvard where Bill Gates, Paul Allen, and Steve Ballmer are together. Bill Gates is played by Anthony Michael Hall, Paul Allen is played by Josh Hopkins, and Steve Ballmer is played by John DiMaggio. We first see Bill as he's playing poker. Then, after seeing an ad in a magazine, he and Paul decide to try writing a programming language for a new computer called the Altair. Of course, the scene we see in the movie isn't really anyone in particular, but just to get the gist across that Bill Gates was a fan of poker, and that is true. Steve Ballmer would later recall many of the all-night poker games that he played with Bill Gates at Harvard. At these games, Bill was known to have won and lost hundreds or even thousands of dollars at the time. 
The weather's getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Now, if you pause the movie like I did, you can clearly see when Josh Hopkins' version of Paul Allen hands Anthony Michael Hall's version of Bill Gates the copy of Popular Electronics with a computer on it, you'll see that the cover claims, quote, world's first mini computer kit to rival commercial models, Altair 8800, end quote. And looking at the cover, we can see the magazine that they're using in the movie is the January 1975 edition of Popular Electronics. And it is true that Paul Allen was the first to see the magazine, immediately buying a copy and sharing it with his friend. So is the next scene we see in the movie when Bill Gates calls up the company that makes the Altair 8800 and insists that they can be the ones to develop a programming language for the computer. After scrambling to develop the language for the Altair 8800 in the movie, we see Paul Allen go to MITS to try and sell their product. He returns to Bill's place with an Altair 8800 in hand. It worked. That's the basic gist of that is true, but it's not the whole story. Most tech enthusiasts and historians consider the Altair 8800 to be the very first personal computer. It was built by a company called Micro Instrumentation Telemetry Systems, or MITS, MITS, which we can actually see that in the background behind Galaird Sertain's character, Ed Roberts. He's the guy that we see answering the phone when Bill calls. The real Ed Roberts was both the founder of MITS and designer of the Altair 8800. At the time, he didn't really expect it to be a massive success. In April of 1974, Intel released their most powerful CPU yet, the Intel 8080. Normally, they sold for about $300 each, but Ed managed to get a great deal on a bulk purchase for only about $75 a pop. That's the chip that Ed used in the Altair 8800, and the lower price of the CPU helped bring the cost of the overall computer itself to something really much more affordable, only $439. That's about the same as $2,200 today. After Paul and Bill found out about the Altair 8800, they sent a letter to Ed Roberts at MITS asking if he would be interested in buying the basic programming language for the computer. Both Paul and Bill had learned BASIC, which is a programming language, earlier in high school and wanted to sell an interpreter for the Altair 8800. So they didn't really develop the programming language. They didn't develop BASIC. That was done by John Kemeny and Thomas Kurtz in the 1960s. But they were going to develop the ability for the Altair 8800 to be able to interpret that language. 
Ed was interested, it would seem, and he called the number on the letter, and he got a wrong number. However, Bill followed up a little bit later on and called Ed, and the rest, as they say, is history. Oh, and that first letter came from a company called Traf Odata, T-R-A-F-O-D-A-T-A. That is what Bill Gates and Paul Allen called their first company. And for what it's worth, Paul Gilbert was also a part of Trafodata, and he's not in the movie at all. Now, that name might seem odd, but it makes sense if you know what they did. You know those tiny little rubber hoses that cities will run along the road? Those collect traffic data. Trafodata's primary purpose was to take that data from the traffic counters and process it into readable reports. Paul Allen flew to MITS headquarters in Albuquerque to show them how they'd managed to get the basic programming language working on the Altair 8800. The very first test that Paul did was by entering in the command print 2 plus 2. The computer responded with a simple number, 4. Just like the movie shows, it worked. They managed to get the basic programming language on the Altair 8800 and sold it for a whopping $500. That's even more than the computer itself. That's not in addition to the computer. That's $500 for the ability to use the basic programming language after you'd bought the computer. But they made a deal with MITS. So if someone bought the Altair 8800, they would get the ability to program with the basic language for only $75 more. That was in March of 1975. And that would be about $350 today. But as you can probably guess, that's quite a far cry from Trafodata's purpose. So On April 4th, 1975, the pair of Bill Gates and Paul Allen formed a new company to sign the deal with MITS. In an interview in Fortune magazine 20 years later, Bill Gates and Paul Allen explained that the name was a bit of a joke at first. Bill Gates, when we signed that first contract with MITS, we referred to ourselves as, quote, Paul Allen and Bill Gates doing business as Microsoft, end quote. That's capital M-I-C-R-O dash capital S-O-F-T. I don't remember why we spelled it with a hyphen and a capital S. We put a credit in the source code of our first product that said, quote, Microsoft Basic. Bill Gates wrote a lot of stuff. Paul Allen wrote some other stuff, end quote. We never officially incorporated until 1981. Paul Allen. We had talked about a lot of different names back in Boston, And at some point, I said, well, the totally obvious name would be Microsoft, Bill Gates. We also had mentioned names like Outcorporated Inc. and Unlimited, Limited. But we were, you know, joking around. We talked a lot about whether we should call it Allen & Gates, but decided that was not a good idea. Paul Allen. Yeah, because companies like DEC, DEC, and IBM weren't named after personalities, they would have a longevity and identity way beyond the founders. Bill Gates. And it seemed like a law firm or some sort of consulting company to call it Allen & Gates. So we picked Microsoft even before we had a company to name. (laughs) I love that. Unlimited, limited, or outcorporated, incorporated. Okay, back in the movie, we see some text on screen that gives us a time and place. It's the Computer Fair, San Francisco, 1977. It's here that Noah Wiley's version of Steve Jobs sheds his anti-corporate persona, donning a suit and tie. The new look is a shock to Waz, but perhaps not quite as much as the shock of what happens next. As soon as the doors open, the crowd rushes to only one booth, Apple's booth. 
Among the throng is Paul Allen and Bill Gates. Bill introduces himself to Steve Jobs, the first meeting between the two that we see in the film. Steve seems a little overwhelmed by the crowd and dismisses him. Dejected, Bill Gates walks away. This, too, is true. Well, I couldn't find any proof that the very brief meeting between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs happened here, but the rest of it is cemented in history. The date was April 16, 1977. Apple Computers was planning to launch their second computer a couple months later, the aptly named Apple II. It was at the first West Coast Computer Fair in San Francisco when the public got their chance to see the Apple II for the first time. And the Apple II came dressed to impress. It had color video, game pedal inputs, seven slots for peripherals, a built-in speaker, support for up to 48K in RAM, that's memory, and came ready for basic. Although the movie doesn't really mention this, the reason why Bill Gates and Microsoft reach out to Apple was because of the Apple II. You see, originally it was Steve Wozniak who wrote BASIC for the Apple II. That's why Steve Jobs turned down Bill Gates' offer to use the version of BASIC that Microsoft had just finished writing for the MOS Technology 6502 processor. The 6502 was the chip used in the Atari 2600, Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, and Commodore 64, and of course, the Apple II. Like the Atari 2600 or the NES, Waz originally assumed a huge market for the Apple II would be gaming. In an article that he wrote for Gizmodo, Steve Wozniak explained, quote, I was a fan of computer games and knew that as soon as I had a computer of my own, I would want to type in all these games to play. Judging by my own feelings, I assumed that this would be a key to starting a home computer revolution, end quote. So when Woz coded BASIC for the Apple II, he decided to strip out floating-point math, numbers with decimals, because games didn't really need anything more complicated than that. Plus, that saved him a few weeks of coding time. The downside, though, was that it made the initial version of BASIC for the Apple II a little less powerful and not able to take advantage of Apple II's high-resolution graphics. Well, high-resolution for the time. And the consumers noticed. They started complaining about the simplified version of BASIC, and by the time 1978 rolled around, Microsoft's version of BASIC was pre-installed in ROM on the Apple II. As a fun little fact, that version of BASIC was referred to as AppleSoft BASIC. It was a mashup of Apple and Microsoft. Going back to the movie, the next major plot point happens when Bill Gates, Paul Allen, and Steve Ballmer show up at IBM's offices. During the meeting, Bill Gates explains to the IBM businessmen that he knows they're working on a personal computer to compete with Apple. Microsoft can provide the operating system, DOS. Then, in the middle of the meeting, the movie sort of pauses for a moment. We see John DiMaggio's version of Steve Ballmer break the fourth wall and talk directly to the camera. He explains to us that what we're watching right here, this moment, it's amazing. Not just amazing, it's historic. He goes on to explain the reason this moment is so important was because it was the moment of creation for one of the greatest fortunes in the history of the world, Bill Gates, who's the richest guy in the world because of what started in this room. That is sort of true. Let's start with that last part. Bill Gates is not the richest person in the world, but that's now, as of this recording. In 1999, when Pirates of Silicon Valley was released, Bill Gates was the richest person in the world. And that's when, according to Forbes magazine, he had a net worth of about $90 billion. Second place on that list was Warren Buffett at a measly $36 billion. Oh, and third and fourth place, Paul Allen at $30 billion and Steve Ballmer at $19.5 billion. So 
who's the richest person in the world now? At least as of this recording, that would be Amazon's CEO, Jeff Bezos, at $93 billion. And for what it's worth, as of 2017, Bill Gates still had $86 billion. He was the richest person in the world for the previous four years until Bezos took over. The meeting we saw in the movie was true. I don't know if that's exactly how it went down, but the overall gist of the meeting is true. The date was November 10th, 1980. Well, again, I guess I don't know if that's actually when Bill Gates first approached IBM, but it was November 10th when IBM signed the contract to have Microsoft provide their own operating system. That would end up being MS-DOS or the Microsoft Disk Operating System. And it's true that Bill Gates managed to convince the higher-ups at IBM to let Microsoft retain all the rights to MS-DOS. IBM didn't really care because they were focused on the hardware. That's what the movie is referring to as being the historic moment that created the world's largest fortune. Instead of just selling software to IBM as like a one-off project, the genius move by Bill to convince IBM to license it from them allowed Microsoft to continue licensing it to other hardware manufacturers, each time growing Microsoft's fortune. Something the movie doesn't really mention, though, is a theory that many historians think might have played into this historic deal, that Bill Gates might have had help from his mom. You see, Bill Gates' mom, Mary, was on the board of directors at the United Way. One of the other board members was none other than IBM's then-president, John Opel. So, did Mary Gates help her son land the meeting with IBM? Maybe. But she wasn't in the room, so I'm not really sure if it matters who helped coordinate the meeting. But, uh, I mean, if you knew someone in your family who might be able to give you a big break, how many of us wouldn't take advantage of that? Oh, and yet another fun fact that the movie doesn't show is that before IBM and Microsoft made their deal, IBM actually wanted to work out a deal with someone else. The most popular operating system at the time was one called CP-M, and it was written by a man named Gary Kildall. But Gary's wife refused to sign an NDA with IBM when they met, so IBM decided to meet with Microsoft. And the rest, as they say, is history. Going back to the movie, after Apple II's success, we see Apple, the company, is doing pretty well. There's a new office, and then there's a scene where Noah Wiley's version of Steve Jobs argues with a woman named Arlene outside of Apple's offices. At first, he insists the baby isn't his, even though Arlene insists that it is. Then, a little later, he tracks her down and insists that she named the baby Lisa. Now, I couldn't verify those exact scenes. After all, some of those scenes were just Steve and Arlene, so it's not like there's the same sort of documentation we'd have left behind, like a contract signed between Microsoft and IBM. But the overall gist of what's going on here is true. Steve Jobs did have a daughter. Her name is Lisa, just like the movie says. And it's true that for a long time, Steve refused to admit that Lisa was his. Even when he named the next Apple computer the Lisa, Steve Jobs refused to admit it was named after her for a while. We see this little bit in the movie, too, when we see Noah Wiley tell one of Apple's other employees that it's not named after his daughter. Initially, he claimed it stood for locally integrated software architecture. But Lisa was born in 1978, and the Lisa computer was released in 1983. So a lot of people don't really believe that acronym was the purpose for the name. Some people even joke that it was a backronym, meaning Steve started with the name Lisa and then made up words to make it fit. So he wouldn't have to admit it was named after the daughter that he refused to admit was his biological daughter. 
Steve Jobs refused to admit Lisa was his daughter for a long time, even getting to the point of requiring a DNA test to start paying child support. The DNA test proved Lisa was, in fact, his daughter, legally requiring Steve Jobs to start paying $385 a month in child support. That sum went up after Apple's IPO made Steve Jobs a millionaire, all the way up to $500 a month. If you listened to the episode of Based on a True Story, where we learned about the 2015 movie called Steve Jobs, that's the one starring Michael Fassbender, not the 2013 film called Jobs with Ashton Kutcher, you'll know that many years later, Steve Jobs admitted that, quote, obviously, it was named for my daughter, end quote. Oh, and as for Arlene, that wasn't her real name. It was Chrisanne Brennan. Technically, they were never married, so Steve Jobs and Chrisanne Brennan's daughter is Lisa Brennan Jobs. Back in the movie, Noah Wiley's version of Steve Jobs has his next genius moment when he tours a Xerox facility. Along with some of his engineers from Apple, Steve walks in and is amazed at the new technology Xerox is working on. They call it a graphical user interface, and it's navigated using a little weird wired box called a mouse. Of course, those are commonplace things today, but at the time, no one had ever heard of them. And according to the movie, Xerox executives didn't really think they were anything special. They pretty much give it away to Steve Jobs by letting him peek behind the curtain. Apple takes the graphical user interface and mouse concept and runs with it, building out what would be their next computer after the Apple II, the Macintosh. That is true. The computer they saw was the Xerox Alto, which was named after the Palo Alto Research Center where it was developed. It was there that in 1979, Steve Jobs managed to get a peek at what they were working on. The movie doesn't really mention this, but it wasn't like Xerox let Apple's engineers tour their research center for free. In return, Xerox was given the ability to buy stock options in Apple. As soon as he saw it, Steve Jobs knew the graphical user interface was something special. So essentially, Steve Jobs took the idea for the mouse and the graphical user interface from the Xerox Alto, but he wasn't alone. Steve Jobs, along with his team at Apple, and Bill Gates, along with his team at Microsoft, both agreed that the graphical user interface, or GUI, were the future for computing. Hot off their deal with IBM for MS-DOS, originally, Bill Gates agreed to a deal with Apple. Essentially, Apple's engineers were building the operating system with a GUI, but Steve Jobs knew a computer needed more than just an operating system. So the idea was that Microsoft would help build software with a graphical user interface or GUI for the Macintosh. In an interview much later, Bill Gates would recall, quote, The Lisa had all its own applications, but of course they required a lot of memory, uh, and we thought we could do better. And so Steve signed a deal with us to actually provide bundled applications for the first Mac. And so we were big believers in the Mac and what Steve was doing there, end quote. Apple was developing two applications, MacWrite and MacPaint, in-house for the Macintosh. Microsoft was going to provide two other programs, Chart and File, as well as a new spreadsheet program, Excel. But Bill Gates wanted to retain rights to their new graphical software. He wanted to be able to create software with a GUI for other computer companies other than Apple. This really wasn't unique. Remember, Microsoft basically did the same thing with IBM for MS-DOS. Steve Jobs, on the other hand, wanted to limit the competition. So eventually, the two agreed that Microsoft 
wouldn't be able to create any graphical software for any other computer company for up to a year after the Macintosh began shipping in January of 1983. Except there's only one problem with that. The deal just assumed that the Macintosh would release in January of 1983. It didn't. It got delayed. Remember that ad that we saw in the beginning of the movie? We talked about it in the beginning of this episode, too. 1984. That is when the Macintosh came out. January 24th, 1984, to be a little more specific. Before that happened, though, Bill Gates announced that Microsoft was working on an operating system of their own that had a graphical user interface. That operating system was called Microsoft Windows, and initially it would be designed to work with IBM's computers. Was that breaking Microsoft's agreement with Apple? Clearly, Steve Jobs felt that way. What the movie didn't really show was that Steve Jobs had convinced the execs at Xerox that Apple could make the technology Xerox had created affordable for the market. And of course, there's the stock that Xerox got out of the deal. In 1979, Apple was still a private company, but was on the verge of going public, which they did in 1980. Well, I can't say what Steve Jobs was thinking at the time. The deal between Apple and Xerox was that Apple got something and Xerox got something. Businesses do these sorts of deals all the time. It makes sense. But on the other hand, Bill Gates apparently didn't feel it was breaking any agreement when he made the announcement for Windows on November 10th, 1983. If you remember, the agreement was that Microsoft wouldn't create any graphical software for anyone else for a year after Macintosh's shipment in January of 1983. In all of my research, as far as I can tell, there was nothing in the original agreement that said anything about delays. So when the new Macintosh didn't ship until January of 1984, that would have been right when the agreement ended. Which means when Bill Gates announced on November 10th, 1983, that Microsoft was going to be working on their own operating system with a GUI, he was technically within his rights. After all, it's not like it was released within that year. The first version of Windows didn't ship until November 20th, 1985, well after the agreed upon year. In the movie, we see a scene where a furious Steve Jobs screams at Bill Gates. Anthony Michael Hall's version of Bill Gates calmly replies to Steve, shouting with a metaphor that Microsoft didn't steal the idea of the GUI from Apple. Both Apple and Microsoft stole the idea of the GUI from Xerox. And the movie is pretty accurate here. Even down to the metaphor that we see being used in the movie, much later, one of the 10 Apple employees who are present for the verbal tongue lashing from Steve Jobs would recall the conversation. You're ripping us off, Steve Jobs shouted. I trusted you, and now you're stealing from us. Bill Gates stayed calm. Then, after a brief moment's pause, he spoke. Well, Steve, I think there's more than one way of looking at it. I think it's more like we both had this rich neighbor named Xerox, and I broke into his house to steal the TV set and found out that you had already stolen it. Or, as Bill Gates himself would recall Microsoft's stance on it many years later, quote, we sort of say, hey, we believe in graphics interfaces. We saw the Xerox Alto too, end quote. That example of stealing a TV from their rich neighbor Xerox is very close to the dialogue that we saw used in the movie. One of the reasons for it being so close to what was really said is because how historically significant that moment was. Many historians point to that conversation as being the moment when the whole Mac versus PC battles began. You know what I'm talking about. The ones that still exist to this day. If you don't know what I'm talking about, 
Just tell one of your friends with a Mac how Windows is better or vice versa. And you'll find out what I mean. Sure, IBM and Apple were competitors before this, but this was when Steve Jobs and by extension Apple saw Microsoft as competitors too. As the movie draws to a close, we see some text on screen that we're now at the St. Francis Hotel in San Francisco. Ella Fitzgerald is singing at Steve Jobs' 30th birthday. Then we see some of Apple's early employees, the people you think would be Steve Jobs' best friends by now, all scrambling when they're asked to perform a toast. And by that, I don't mean they're scrambling to do it. They're all scrambling to avoid being the ones that have to toast Steve Jobs. No one wants to do it. It seems no one likes Steve Jobs. Finally, and we're still in the movie's timeline here, Steve Wozniak convinces John Scully to do the toast. John does, ending it with something to the effect of, to the man without whom none of this would have happened, Steve Jobs, truly a guiding light, a man who sees the future. Then we see text on the screen that explains John Scully fired Steve Jobs three months later. The basic gist of that is true, but there's more to the story. The 30th birthday party was real. The date was February 24th, 1985, and it is true that the jazz legend Ella Fitzgerald sang at his party, although from what I can gather, it's not likely that she knew who he was at the time. And while it's also true that a lot of Apple's employees had grown to dislike Steve Jobs because of his abrasive nature, we see that throughout the film as he belittles employees and yells at them when they aren't working up to his standards. But there's something that the movie doesn't mention. And that is a moving five-minute-long video that some folks from Apple put together for Steve's birthday. You can actually find it on YouTube. One of the Apple employees who was there posted it on Facebook after Steve Jobs passed away, and subsequently it made its way to YouTube. I'll add a link to it in the resources section for this episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com if you want to check it out. So I suppose you could say some people at Apple didn't like Steve Jobs. He wasn't an easy person to work for, but I think it'd be safe to say that a lot of people at Apple respected him for the genius that he was. That brings us to the text that says John Scully fired Steve Jobs three months after he gave the toast at Steve's 30th. That's true. Sort of. John Scully, who was the CEO of Apple at the time, did toast Steve Jobs at his birthday party, but technically he didn't really fire Steve Jobs. But for all intents and purposes, he sort of did. The movie might be able to get away with that because Steve Jobs himself said multiple times that he was fired. For example, in 2005, at a commencement speech, Steve Jobs said, We had just released our finest creation, the Macintosh, a year earlier, and I had just turned 30. And then I got fired. How can you get fired from a company you started? Well, as Apple grew, we hired someone who I thought was very talented to run the company with me. And for the first year or so, things went well. But then our visions of the future began to diverge, and eventually we had a falling out. When we did, our board of directors sided with him. And so, at 30, I was out, and very publicly out. What had been the focus of my entire adult life was gone, and it was devastating. Ten years later, John Scully gave his answer to Steve Jobs' claim of being fired in an interview at the Engage 2015 conference in Prague. John said, Steve was never fired. He took a sabbatical and was still chairman of the board. He was down. No one pushed him, but he was off the Mac, which was his deal. He never forgave me for that. Then, a little later, he explained further. 
He started Next and was sued by the board for hiring Apple engineers, but he was never fired by Apple. Whether or not Steve Jobs was fired is really semantics because the end result was that Steve Jobs left Apple. We learn a little more about this in the Steve Jobs episode of Based on a True Story. Check that out to learn more about what happened to Steve when he left Apple. Back in today's movie, though, the final moments on screen take us all the way back to the beginning of the movie. We see a close-up of Noah Wiley's version of Steve Jobs on stage. Then we hear a voice behind him. Hi, Steve. The camera cuts to a wider shot, and we can see Bill Gates on the video screen above Steve Jobs. Bill remarks that it'll be interesting working together. Steve nods. Yeah, it is. Then the final text on screen says, Microsoft now owns part of Apple. Then it claims Bill Gates is currently the wealthiest man in the world. Well, we already learned that's not quite true for Bill Gates, but we can give the movie a pass because in 1999, when the film was released, it was true. What about the part where Microsoft owns a part of Apple? That's another case of the movie being sort of true and sort of false. Although, it's worth pointing out that the scene in the movie with Bill Gates up on the screen was very accurate, even down to what they're wearing. You can find photos of the real event online, and I'll make sure to put a link to those over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. So, after Steve Jobs was fired, or kicked out, or just left, however you want to phrase that, Apple did well for a while. Things were fine for a while. But as the years ticked by, it became clear that things weren't the same without Steve Jobs' passion and vision. Meanwhile, Steve Jobs sold most of his Apple stock and used those funds to start a new computer company called Next in 1984. Then, in 1986, he bought a company that he wanted to pick up while he was at Apple but couldn't convince Apple's board to buy. On his own now, Steve didn't need approval, so he bought a part of Lucasfilm Limited for $10 million. That part was the computer graphics division, and Steve Jobs, John Lasseter, and Ed Catmull renamed the division turned company Pixar Animation Studios. At Microsoft, things were going great. Windows 95 was released in August 24, 1995, and it was flying off the shelves. Over at Apple, not so much. In fact, things were so bad that Apple's board decided the only thing that they could do to save them would be to bring back their estranged founder. So they did. In December of 1996, Apple bought Next. That's the computer company Steve Jobs started after leaving Apple. But most historians don't think Apple was really interested in Next. Their technology was virtually non-existent. They just wanted Steve back. But Steve Jobs knew he couldn't bring Apple back by himself. So it was, like the movie says, Bill Gates and Microsoft who helped. They bought $150 million worth of Apple stock. It wasn't voting stock, so it wasn't like Microsoft had control over Apple, though. That's why a lot of people say it would be incorrect to imply that Microsoft owns a part of Apple. But technically, they did. That $150 million in stock gave Microsoft about 150,000 shares of preferred Apple stock. And that was converted to common stock a few years later, and in 2003, Microsoft sold off all of their Apple stock. In retrospect, they might be sad about that. Today, that $150 million worth of preferred Apple stock, way back then, will be worth about $10 billion today. Of course, it's not like Bill Gates was or is hurting for money. With all of this history between Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, you're probably wondering, after all this, why would Apple turn to Microsoft for help so soon after Steve Jobs came back to the company? Maybe that last little bit 
could be why. Being so soon. It seemed that when Steve Jobs came back to Apple, things were a little worse than a lot of people might have realized. So maybe Steve turned to the one person he knew he could get a quick supply of cash from, no doubt biting back his own pride in the process. In a 2010 interview, Steve was asked how bad things were for Apple when he got back. His reply was simple. We were 90 days from going bankrupt. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. There's a lot of information out there about Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, and the rift between Apple and Microsoft. This episode is just the beginning. If you're looking for a place to start, I would recommend starting with the only biography Steve Jobs himself authorized. It's called simply Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Or if you want to learn more about the history between these two companies, I've got tons of articles and resources over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com for this episode. Oh, and if you haven't yet, you can dig a little deeper because we also covered the 2015 movie called Steve Jobs that was based on Walter Isaacson's biography. So if you're listening to this, you've already found the show. So just scroll a little further down into the past episodes to find it. Before we get to the answer to the two truths and a lie game, here's another five-star review. This one is a review from Stephanie over on the Based on a True Story Facebook page. And it says, I normally listen to true crime podcasts, but I love history. This podcast is an amazing combination of favorite movies and the stories behind them. Keep up the good work. It's a pleasure to listen to them. Thanks so much, Stephanie. And I know Stephanie knows this because she's helped me with them. But if this is your first time listening to the show, it was Stephanie who helped me out with some of the German pronunciations on a couple of previous episodes. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Not only for the kind words in this review, but for all of your help behind the scenes. It's truly appreciated both by me and the folks who don't have to hear me horribly butcher German pronunciations. Well, (laughs) maybe not quite as much anyway. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the graphical user interface was not Apple or Microsoft's idea first. Number two, the quote, licorice computer, end quote, was Steve Wozniak's first computer. Number three, Steve Jobs has a daughter named Lisa. Did you find out which one is a lie? The lie is number two. Although it's not that far off, (laughs) Steve Wozniak's first computer, which he built with Bill Fernandez, was actually called the cream soda computer, not the licorice computer. And that brings us to an end to our story today. But it doesn't have to be the end of your learning about the relationship between Microsoft and Apple. You can find links to plenty of books, resources, and more over at the show's home on the web, basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.